Hello, I'm Zev Neuwirth, and welcome to Creating a New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and most importantly, a humanistic system of healthcare. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. Folks, our guests today are Dr. Renee Dua and Nick Desai, co-founders of two amazing companies, Heal and most recently, Hey Renee. They focus their efforts on seniors, people with complex chronic conditions and the underserved, and their purpose, as I understand it, is to provide convenient and accessible care in the home and to leverage digital technology to personalize healthcare as well as to make it more accessible. And I have to say, from everything I've read and heard from these two folks, they're incredibly mission-driven, which really resonates and speaks to my heart. Now, before I introduce our guests more formally, I'm gonna make a request of you. If you listen to the podcast, and you find value in this podcast, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues and also go online and rate the podcast. It actually makes it easier for others to discover it. Now, a number of you have already begun sharing the podcast on LinkedIn, Twitter, and other social media forums. And I just wanna say thank you. And for those of you who are going to, I really greatly appreciate you taking the moment to spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So I'm so, so excited to introduce you to Dr. Renee Dua. She is a physician entrepreneur who created and co-founded Hey Renee based on her 15 years of experience as a practicing nephrologist. Prior to Hey Renee, she co-founded Heal, where she served as the chief medical officer for seven years, leading the successful delivery of over 300,000 doctor house calls, as well as driving the clinical strategy and product development. Renee created and co-founded Hey Renee in June of 2021, just this past June, with their co-founder and husband, Nick, they initially raised $3.8 million in seed funding. And just this past week, read that they raised another $4.4 million for a total of $8.2 million in pre-launch funding. Hey, Renee was recently selected as one of 15 digital health startups to participate in the Department of Health and Human Services Pandemic Accelerator Program whose purpose is to address health inequities and deploy resources to mitigate the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. Dr. Renee Du attended UC San Diego undergrad. She received her MD from Rosalind Franklin University, completed her residency in internal medicine at UCLA and her fellowship in nephrology at USC. Nick Desai is the co-founder and CEO of Hey Renee. He is a highly accomplished entrepreneur who has created and led four successful startups over the past couple of decades. Prior to co-founding Hey Renee, which is his fifth startup, Nick was CEO and co-founder of Heal, the company I mentioned before that leveraged technology to enable doctor house calls. Nick Renee and their colleagues expanded Heal into 10 states and secured contracts with over 50 major employers and insurance partners. Nick earned his bachelor's degree in electrical and computer engineering from UC Irvine, as well as a master's degree in electrical engineering from UCLA. I have to say that in addition to their amazing professional accomplishments, both Nick and Renee are parents of three young children whom they clearly adore. I've had the privilege of seeing Nick play with his kids on social media. It's very, very heartwarming. Nick, Renee, just want to welcome you to Creating a New Healthcare. How are you both doing today? Very well. Thank you. Thank you for having us and taking the time to speak with us. My pleasure. I have to say, before we jump into discussing Hey, Renee, and just kind of curious. So, Nick, here you are. You're an engineer and obviously a highly accomplished entrepreneur 
on the West Coast in LA. And Renee, you're an amazingly accomplished physician and you're married. How did you start to work together? As far as I know, Heal was your first uh, venture together. How did that even happen? How did that come about? What's the origin story, if you don't mind my asking? Renee, you want to take that one? Oh, certainly. So I will, I will say that both of our parents worked together all their lives. And so it was hilarious to us because we met and we got married and we thought we will never work together. <laughs> you know, our parents see each other inside out. They literally sit at the same desk and talk and bicker. And we thought that is just not for us. And obviously I was uh, way off on that one. When Nick and I met, I, I was certain I didn't want to marry a doctor. Um, I love the job I do, but I wanted it to be all my own. And I think Nick honestly was enamored with the notion of marrying a doctor and, and doing the important work that, that we doctors do. Um, you know, uh, Bunny, what do you think about that? Is that true? Yes. I, well, I was enamored with the idea of marrying a smart, capable person and doctors, they, you know, the, the work they do to devote themselves to making the lives of other people better is, is, is very, very inspiring. But, and then I met Renee and I was especially enamored with the idea of marrying her. <laughs> but were you sitting across the table at dinner and said, hey, let's form a company? How did that happen? I mean, the discussion that led to you both forming Heal. Yeah. So what happened was we, we had an unfortunate incident trying to get care for one of our very young children, right? And uh, at the time, this was seven years ago, uh, a little boy who turned eight two days ago. And when you say we're obsessed with our three cute little kids, we, we are absolutely obsessed with our three cute little kids, right? And Renee's a physician and I'm an engineer and I do startups and I think about it. And so one day we were taking an Uber and I was like, there's Uber for this and there's Uber for that. And how is it easier in America to get a pizza than a doctor? This doesn't make sense, right? Let's fix this. And so we sat around to fix it. And so we, we talked about it and we were like, this should exist. Then we sort of, you know, went on our way. And, and then I went and made a sort of a mock of the app, the first Heal app as a demo that runs on a phone. And I showed it to Renee and she was like, yeah, we're doing this, right? Wow. And then literally we started doing it. And it started with a simple, trivial little app. And I would drive Renee around. People would book the house calls. I drive Renee with our kids. By that time, we had two asleep in the back seat of the car. Mm -hmm. um, and she'd go up and do the house calls. And it grew to 200 million funding and operations in 10 states. And um, turned out pretty nicely. Renee, you're a nephrologist. There's so many issues in healthcare. Tell us a little bit about what HEAL does, but how did you pick home visits? How did you pick seniors? Why, why is that the problem? What about that attracted you to say, hey, this is the problem we need to solve in healthcare? Yeah, so when we started HEAL, it really wasn't focused just on seniors. We wanted to deliver access to vulnerable populations and fundamentally, we were building primary care in the home using software, right? Um, it started in a more urgent care type fashion, but we grew into actually delivering on that promise to take care of children and, and seniors. And we envisioned 
this company where, you know, the chief medical officer of the house, who is often mom, mm -hmm. is taking care of both her kids and her parents. And, you know, she, she needs care for herself. And so everyone in the house was getting what they needed, whether it be, you know, dealing with a, a tummy ache to getting vaccinated, right? Um, and, you know, it took a pandemic to really shine a light on how important that was and is conceptually, but clearly, you know, we were, we were ahead of our time. Mm -hmm. I'll also say, you know, as a nephrologist, my patients who did the best, who always outlived their diagnosis and felt empowered were those who were doing dialysis at home. And so I had a very big peritoneal dialysis population. Those are patients who were getting dialyzed at home and they had very involved caretakers and partners. And it, it really turned the light on for me that, you know, why isn't everything happening at home, whether it be getting your fillers and your Botox to your echo to, you know, your physical. Um, and that, that was where I came from, from a, from a clinical perspective. So for you, it really was about moving care into the home. Yeah, I, to this day, I mean, I fundamentally believe that there is no magic that happens inside a building, right? Mm -hmm. I think the best doctors want to spend time with you and they look at their, their surroundings and they get a lot of answers to their questions and where better to do that, but in the home. Right, it's much more contextual care. And personalized. And and personalized. And I think you were alluding to a moment ago with the peritoneal patients with peritoneal dialysis. I, what I, I guess I'm inferring is you're saying clinically it's safer. Not, not even just safer, but, you know, patients sleep in their own bed. Mm -hmm. They wake up in their own home. They set themselves up. They eat what they want. Their caretaker sees what's happening. The supplies are all there. They have full control of this part of their life. And um, you know, we, we even know scientifically that patients who dialyze at home do better, but there's a real, again, fundamentally, I believe as a physician, when you enable patients, you empower patients. So enabling them to get this life-saving measure at home gives them the power and the onus to do it. And they do. Mm -hmm. And Nick, a moment ago, you mentioned the app. What was the technology that was leveraged that made this and, and did it make it possible? Did it make it better to do this? How did the technology fit into what Renee's talking about? Well, first of all, I think it's important to note that there has been, when we started Heal in October of 2014, we launched the first version of the app in March of 2015, right? Mm -hmm. And if you think back, because it feels like eons or anything before the pandemic, this feels like ancient history now. But if you think back to that time, we were moving towards a world that we live in now, which is everything is available to me at the touch of my fingertips on demand in my home, right? Even in 2015, DVDs, for example, to watch content were much more of a thing. Shopping for groceries on an app versus going to the grocery store, it was much more, it's still not quite there to go get your groceries to come to my, to get my groceries to come to my house, right? Hmm. And today we live in a world where any restaurant, any, any, even in 2015, restaurants took pride, fine restaurants, and we don't deliver. You have to come here to eat, right? right. Everybody delivers now through Grubhub, through Seamless, through Postmates, through whatever. Mm -hmm. And in that environment, I think that we saw that, I saw that as a market trend. And so what we wanted to 
enable in healthcare was the same level of ease. The personalization, it turns out though, that when you get food delivered to your house, right? You get the same restaurant, same convenience, same price. It's all that stuff. It's more convenient. You don't have to pack your kids in a car, but it's not quite the same experience because sometimes they don't get the extra cheese correctly and it's still in a cardboard box and you still got to clean the table when you're done. Maybe you put the food on dishes, right? Mm -hmm. It's not quite the same as being served at a nice restaurant, right? Mm -hmm. When a doctor comes to your house, it's actually a fundamentally better experience because a doctor can see context. And so how does this relate to your question about the app? The technology we wanted to build had to be flexible and scaled. Building a simple app to book any service on demand is a straightforward task. To build an app that was looking at the future to understand the context of a patient, to take into account the things that apply in healthcare that don't apply in ordering food, which is this person thinks they have gas, but they're actually having a heart attack. and they need to call 911, so we need to screen for life-threatening medical emergencies. Hmm. Take into account that a vast majority of Americans do have health insurance, and they want to use their health insurance to pay for healthcare services instead of cash paying for those same services. Taking those in that context, Heal, Renee and I built with Heal the first real-time price verification and eligibility verification so we could check and make sure you were covered by insurance and charge that insurance and all of those things. But the point is we wanted to build an app that had incredible ease of use in the way Uber did in its early days. Uber is much more capable now and so has a more, more involved UX, but in its early days it was in I want to ride here, here's my credit card, done. It was magic. In the same way we wanted to build deliver that magic for doctor house calls, but with an eye towards a future in which insurance was accepted, in which we were triaging for the seriousness of the condition, in which we were treating repeat patients differently so they could book the same doctor as opposed to uh, just a random doctor. It wasn't just for uh, urgent care. It was for primary care. We wanted to become your doctor. You could pick a pediatrician for your kids and an adult doctor for you and all of those things. So we built the UX with that in mind and the technology with that in mind. Yeah, that's fantastic. Wow. And on the app, in terms of the medical record, was that also part of the app or did folks record on whatever medical record they were already using? Uh, no. So getting the medical records was really important and producing the medical records. So, you know, now in 2021, July, for the first time, the sh digital sharing of medical records became a, a law with the 21st Century Cures Act and everyone has to enable it. We were doing that. We had a theory from 2015, not a theory of belief that you and your medical records. So, in fact, when I put my kids in school for the first time, my eight-year-old, when he started kindergarten and the school needed his vaccine records, I shared it out of heel. I had his vaccine records there. I typed it in. I put in the school's email address and they got it that way, right? That's the kind of ease we've believed that needs to exist in all aspects of healthcare. That's fantastic. So many questions about Heal. Everything I've read about it has just been so fascinating. It just makes so much sense. I do want to switch over, though, to talk about Hey Renee, which is the company, as I mentioned before, you, you just formed this past summer. Renee, what was, in this case, with Hey Renee, what was the fundamental problem in healthcare that you're addressing? So with Hey Renee, you know, which Nick named for me specifically because 
we think that every patient deserves a daughter to care for them. And, you know, by the way, she happens to be a doctor, right? My own father and in my own family, each year that I've been involved in startups, um, I have helped my own family members navigate and coordinate their care. I've reminded them of things that need to be done. I've scheduled appointments. I have picked up and dropped off medications. I've made sure that they have supplies to take a shower. And hmm. it's, it's really, you know, in the last several years and certainly in the last year with COVID and whatnot, it's got me thinking that, you know, how do people who don't have a doctor or a provider of care of some sort in their family manage all of this, right? Each time I see a patient and I give that patient a task list of things to do, um, it, it's a leap of faith I'm taking that they'll get all of those, those jobs and tasks done. Um, and most of the time they don't, they can't. Right. There are things in their way or there are limitations they have. And so we really wanted to work directly with patients to, to solve some of those problems. I love that phrase, because I've never really thought about it that way, but it's absolutely true. When physicians each and every day across the country write prescriptions or put care plans into place and they're typing it into their electronic medical record, you're absolutely spot on. It's a radical leap of faith that what they're writing will actually happen. And it's not in no way a criticism of patients, it's just there's a lot to do, there's a lot involved, like paying for things and transportation and following through and remembering, and it is a leap of faith. How did you start to have that conversation with Nick and start to create the solution? So, you know, I was, it's sort of a funny story. I was helping my dad and there was just a lot going on for him. And I, you know, I was frustrated and I said, you know, this is crazy. Like I need to automate myself, right? I need to, you know, there's so many things I have to do. And there's so many things I know that can be done better. I genuinely need to, to make myself into a virtual caretaker. So all of these steps can be handled. And um, I drew Nick a picture of all the things I was doing, you know, whether it be, again, organizing that appointment or uh, getting those medications delivered or those supplies delivered. And I was, I was drawing, you know, for him, like, can you imagine that one person has to do this? Right. And he's like, well, why does one person have to do this? Why, why don't we create some platform, some sort of software that helps, you know, and supports and enables and, um, you know, that it was, it was genuinely this, this really funny conversation, not funny, but frustrating, you know, problem solving conversation that turned into what I think is the most critical thing missing in healthcare. There are so many point solutions, none of which talk to each other, all of which don't look at a patient holistically. This brings them all together. And I, I think it's, you know, conceptually, what all of us humans need in our lives, no matter our age, incidentally. So Nick, could you describe the platform that came out of these conversations with Renee? What, what is it that it does? Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, what we wanted to do is be the coordination piece, the put, put it all together. The analogy I always use, and I'm an engineer, so I think about things this way, is 
there's an architect who designs your house and then a general contractor who comes and builds it. And the general contractor is the one who says, put lay the concrete first and then put in the whatever else you do in a house and all the way up to bathrooms and fixtures and whatever, right? You don't put the bathroom in before the foundation. And too often in medicine, patients are looked at as vertical silos, right? I'll take my own exact example. So when I was in, in, in November, my wife, Renee, asked me for her birthday if I would go get an annual physical, and I did. And it turns out my 51 years of eating cheese and um, red meat is is not great for my blood pressure, it turns out. So who knew, right? But um, I, uh, I needed to take a blood pressure medication. The doctor tells me, he's like, Nick, okay, I'm gonna prescribe this medicine, um, but it doesn't work for everybody. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell me when you come here in a month, I want you to measure your blood pressure every day, write it down, and then tell me what your blood pressure is. And I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. Hmm. I'm going to put myself on, hey, Renee, and then you are going to get a weekly report of my blood pressure. And what hey, Renee does is as soon as it takes the comment, as soon as the doctor writes a prescription, it gets the notification that I have a medication take, delivers it to my house. Reminds me to take it. It's a medication you take at night. So at seven o'clock at night, I get a text message reminding me to take this medication. Then it reminds me uh, to measure my blood pressure every morning. It's supposed to be you're supposed to do in the morning. I measure my blood pressure in the morning. That goes to my doctor. My doctor saw it about a week later and said, "Okay, we need to add a second medication, which is common." Added the second medication, and voila, my blood pressure came down. Right. Imagine that without a world of hey, Renee, right? Imagine that you're 78 years old and you don't just have hypertension. You also have diabetes and obesity and mental health issues, and you don't drive and you're not, you have low health and tech literacy, right? Our goal in this platform is to be the place in an intuitive, easy way that does the things that are the glue between you and great healthcare. You see a doctor, they tell you what to do. To do that, you have to get medications delivered, you have to take them, you have to track vitals, you have to make appointments, you have to have access to urgent care, all those things have to, you're, you know, people talk about, oh, this person needs help with mental health, and they have hypertension, or low blood sugar, whatever. Well, if one of those things causes sleeplessness, so you're not sleeping well, mm-hmm. it's probably important that your mental health professional know that. Similarly, if your mental health professional thinks that the reason you're overeating is because of depression, it's probably important that your primary care doctor knows that, right? We make sure that data communicates. We make sure all the pieces are working together because you're not, in fact, a diabetic or a hypertensive or obese, your obese patient. You are Jane Smith or Juanita Gomez or Jack Smith or whatever the case may be. You're a human being who has obesity and diabetes. You mentioned humanistic care. We have to understand the whole person and understand in addition to the fact that this person has these clinical issues, they're, they've lost their spouse of many years and they want to date again. And they're active in their church picnic and they want to be able to cook for that. And they have grandkids they want to play with. And they've gone back to part-time work. These are all factors that if we understand, then we can create a daily interactive plan that is so specific and personal and custom fit to that person that it fits hand in glove in a way that truly works for people.
Yeah, it's interesting. In some of the reading I did, I saw that you all described this as sort of a personalized care concierge that delivers a platform that delivers whole person care. And I'm hearing that and beginning to see that. How does all this information actually make its way into the platform, though? Does someone so, have to put it in there or is it connected? It's to a with- combination of ways. The first is we get access to your prior health records. With your permission, we get digital access to your prior health records. Mm-hmm. Okay. The second is we talk to you in an onboard in what we call a concierge session for an hour, right? Mm-hmm. And ask questions that people love to get asked and no one's ever asked them. Like, where do you keep your medications? Oh, I keep them upstairs because I take them at night, but it hurts my knee to go upstairs. So sometimes I sleep downstairs, so I forget to take them, right? One in four Americans that has an asthma inhaler doesn't know that you have to press down before you suck in for the asthma inhaler to work, right? For to release the medicine. One in four Americans use their asthma inhaler incorrectly. We ask them how you use your asthma inhaler. We ask the questions, including not just what medications were ever prescribed to you, which is what your health record shows, but which ones are you actively taking right now? Which ones are you not taking? Why are you not taking that one? When do you take it? Does it cause you nausea? Are you taking it with grapefruit juice, right? So all of those things, and oftentimes the person doesn't have an accurate or current care plan so that we are helping them see a doctor in the first place to get that accurate current care plan. And by putting these pieces together, with the prior health records, then we go to a third level, which is assessing the social and cultural determinants, things like their dating and they speak Spanish and that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. Then we go to level four, which is the ongoing engagement data. The medication came to your house, we're reminding you to take it. Did you actually take it? Mm-hmm. You're saying you took it, your blood pressure is not going down. That means one of two things. Either you're not taking it or this medication isn't working, which is how we can rectify that problem by either engaging you more directly or by letting your doctor know the medication isn't working. And with that stepwise approach, over time, we gain a more and more comprehensive set of data that allows us to go from primary care to preventive care to predictive healthcare. So I can see how the daughter who's a doctor figures into this and, and Renee could see all the questions that you helped formulate embedded in here. So it sounds to me like there's actually a person who's engaged. This isn't completely automated. So if I was on Hey Renee, is there a, I don't even know what to call it. Is there a personalized care concierge person who, who's following me? Yep. In the very beginning, the first step will be human engagement. We know that in this particular population, that's how the conversation starts, right? They're not going to want to be approached by a robot or a bot or a chat, you know, text. And so we start with a human care concierge and we ask these various questions and kind of get down in the weeds about what these, what is causing some of these last mile problems. And then based on their, um, their preferences, we start engaging with them using forms of automation. For example, a voice-enabled device or uh, a text. And some of them want phone calls and we do phone calls too, right? Um, But whatever we need to do to keep them engaged and keep them feeling like we're keeping an eye on them. A separate part, as Nick mentioned, is this remote monitoring concept. You know, Mm -hmm. certainly during the pandemic, remote monitoring has taken off. But what I think everyone may miss is that it's useless to just take a blood pressure 16 times a month. 
it's far more interesting to take that blood pressure 16 times a month and see the trend um, and start aligning the trends of blood pressures rising during the holidays when a patient might be more anxious or run out of medications. Um, and, and then coordinating that to say, okay, well, you know, your heart rate's up too. Maybe you are anxious. Let's book a therapy appointment for you, or let's make sure that you don't run out of these medications again by having them delivered this time. So, you know, bringing the whole picture together just based on vitals and alerts, I think is really a more powerful way to show patients that, look, I've, I've got my eye on you. I'm keeping an eye on you. You keep doing what you're doing, and I'm going to make sure you feel like you're tucked in because of what we're doing. Mm. So is there sort of a virtual command center? Is there a nurse? Is there a navigator? Who's the other that's keeping an eye on me? And, and so that boils down to the software we're building and then that care concierge that's overseen. Got it. And is there literally like a person that I get to know? And That's correct. Okay. Yes. Okay, so I'm assigned to care. Thank you so much, both of you, for making this so much clearer for me. How does this service, if you will, in this technology, how does it interact? Do I still have a primary care doctor elsewhere? And how does this interact with that doctor and electronic medical record and let's say my specialist and, and how does that work? Yeah, so to be clear, we are not your doctor. In mm -hmm. fact, one of the powers of Hey Renee is that we're not reinventing the pieces that are already out there. You know this, Ziv, that $130 billion went into health tech investments in the last year, right? Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, a majority of that went to increasingly specific point solutions for smaller and smaller audiences, as opposed to horizontal whole person health or care coordination type of solutions. Everyone's trying to split the audience vertically even more and more. But the result of that is that everything is out there. There's prescription delivery apps and mental health apps and uh, musculoskeletal health apps and this apps. There's all these different apps and services. And what we wanna do is come in and use that ecosystem with your doctor the ecosystem of partners and make it easy for you to to put all your care together in an to we want to put all your care together in an easy way so yes we want to enable and empower you without burdening your doctor that's sort of the beauty of what we do yeah no super important i think it makes a lot of sense and you're right there's so many point solutions out there that actually have sort of disintegrating care as opposed to integrating care in yes. the way that you're talking about right because uh, it is easier to rift money mm -hmm. sort of by by focusing on a vertical finding a narrow niche of people that really need your product getting them on it showing that there's usage et cetera, et cetera, and then does it scale does it solve a large-scale problem no right mm -hmm. So obviously the patient and their family are customers, but who pays for this and who are you marketing this to? What stakeholders in healthcare? So it's, this is the, the million dollar question. And, and what is very exciting to us is in fact that we have a model that is free for patients and we look more closely at a model that is direct to consumer where caretakers and those risk-bearing entities that care for patients pay for this. Um, we want patients to have no friction using something like this. We want them to be able to enjoy various services that we can offer all for free for them. But it's our estimation that we're doing a lot of the background work for 
those entities like caretakers, like you know, hospital systems and payers to close care gaps, to ensure medication adherence, to find out social determinants of health. And that's a, and not just an enormous amount of work, that's very valuable data that you know, payers and, and risk-bearing entities are collecting on. And so we wanna be a part of, of that revenue stream and that revenue cycle. Mm-hmm. There's also value in directing uh, patients to some of these point solutions that should join us on this platform. So if you provide a mental health service and it's in network with a various carrier or payer, then it will be on our platform and we will direct patients to use your mental health uh, program. And so I think that's also a very exciting revenue stream. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I see that. I can imagine, and I'm thinking of even my own dad and he's got four or five or six chronic conditions has been in and out of the hospital. Uh, this would be valuable. I, I'm thinking not only to take care of things like chronic diseases like high blood pressure and diabetes, but also keeping him out of the hospital and away from emergency rooms, which is Precisely. great Precisely. for him, great for us as his caregivers and children, but it's also great for the payers because they're going to save money in terms of avoidable costs of care like EDs and hospitalizations and readmissions and whatnot. Absolutely correct. So, so would you label this as a... And, and on the other hand, I was, so I was going to ask the question, would you label this as a value-based care sort of business model? But I could also see going direct to consumer because, I mean, quite honestly, someone like myself and my siblings, we would pay for something like this for peace yeah. of mind. So we, you know, value-based care, unfortunately, in my opinion, is not delivering the value it's supposed to, right? It is too easy for companies and more and more being investigated. It is too, and I've talked a lot about this, um, that it's too easy for companies to get a patient. And how does value-based care work? Medicare gives you a flat rate to take care of a senior based on their risk assessment, okay? And you have two ways to make money. Either you legitimately give them great care and lower the cost of care, or you just increase the risk assessment and you say this the patient is sicker than you thought and you may get more money for the patient mm-hmm. right and too many companies are doing the latter and not enough are doing the former right mm-hmm. and companies are finally uh medicare has finally started to take a hard look at this which is really really important i think mm-hmm. right and so in that arena why what where we want to be is we want to be an enabling technology that increases engagement, gets people to follow their care plan, um, gets people to achieve better health and lowers the cost of care, right? By doing, achieving better health, not by any other mechanism, right? Mm -hmm. Healthy people cost less, we wanna lower the cost of care, et cetera. And if we, and in that context, we specifically don't wanna tie ourselves to the current value-based modality. We want to tie ourselves to generating real value, which is to improve health outcomes and lowering costs, but not tie ourselves to what we think is a broken payment model around value-based care, right? So whether it's the family paying, whether it's an employer paying, whether it is a payer, a risk-bearing entity that is paying who owns a cost, we want to make sure that whoever's paying is in their interests are aligned with ours, which is fundamentally lowering the cost of care by improving patient outcomes. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And you were alluding to this notion that across the country, we're seeing 
people taking risk or organizations taking risk. And, and you're right, the faster way to make money is to actually increase the risk of the patient by coding HCCs and increasing RAF scores. And there was actually that quite famous now article, or actually a couple of articles in Health Affairs published in the last two or three months by Don Berwick and, and Rick Gilfillan about this particular problem in Medicare, sort of pointing it out quite explicitly. What are some of the challenges you're facing in, and, and or just what's the hard work you're finding that you have to do? And I think, Nick, I, I saw something about, I think it was a quote by you in terms of being a successful entrepreneur, which you are, that it, it's all about the execution. And so what is the, the hard work of making, like what you just described in terms of really making people, helping people, enabling people, helping them stay healthy, and that leading to the reduction in total cost of care? The, the hard work is genuinely making people believe that we are going to deliver on this thing that has been talked about for so long <laughs> and promised. Every every app, every service, every healthcare system says, we treat you like a person. We treat you, Kaiser says it, Sutter says it, Dignity, everyone says the same things, right? Mm-hmm. And they all, the, every insurance company, you know, we're, we're human, we're different, we're better, we're this, mm-hmm. right? And ultimately they all turn out to be the same you you feel like a number you feel disenfranchised care is more and more a treadmill operation less and less personal doctors eight over 80 percent of doctors now work for large groups and the largest insurance company in america is also the largest employer of doctors in america which means which means you know that there's an inherent conflict of interest insurance companies are designed to say you know reduce the cost and doctors should be uh, independent to provide the care they think is necessary. In that environment, it is hard to get people to believe that our stuff will actually do what it says it will and to really engage. It's easy to engage with Hey Renee. We're making it easier before our formal launch. We want to make it intuitive and obvious and all of that stuff, but it's hard to get people to believe that that will actually happen. And if we get, and, and I think if we do that, by having a product experience that actually delivers on people's real needs, I think we, we you know, we're on some, onto something special. And if we don't, then who cares? We haven't done anything interesting in the first place. Thank you, Nick. Renee, you wrote in a correspondence we had through email, you wrote that in terms of the issue or one of the problems you're addressing, you wrote, and I quote here, the disconnect between those in charge and those who are sick. Could you say more about that? Yeah, I mean, I think, Most people do not have the resources that those who are in governing bodies or the CEO of X company or, you know, the supplier of funds have, right? You know, having built uh, a company or two and and having to get funding, you know, I, I, for example, met more than one investor who thought that Heal would become their personal, you know, uh, doctor, right? Now, mm-hmm. now I have my, you know, my concierge doctor because I invested money, right? That was never what Heal was born to do. And that's certainly not the reality for most Americans, right? Most Americans are standing in line at a pharmacy, hoping that their medication is filled so that they can take it today and that they have food to take it with. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't necessarily feel that the people who make the rules get the reality of the rules that they make. You Mm -hmm. know, I I can't tell you how many times I've read about 
ex-CEO who gets, you know, his exercise on their Peloton, right? And I, I, you know, I find this so tone deaf because most people cannot afford a $2,000, $3,000 piece of equipment to gain health and stay off medication, right? Um, and, you know, I'm not, that's not a dig necessarily, but I, I, you know, for example, to this day, I see patients and I go to a, you know, pretty crummy part of Los Angeles to do it. And I never will stop because I never want to forget that the reality for people looks a lot like my office. And I want to make sure that I'm building services to help those very people who need, who are desperate and need the help. And um, honestly, they're forgotten. They're, they're honestly forgotten. So I think that's, that's what I'm trying to say. And I don't mean to sound holier than thou. And I don't mean to, you know, sound um, condescending in any way. But the most expensive patients are the ones who need the most. And if we start there, we actually can do very little to help quite a bit. And I find it to be worth it. Yeah. Your focus from what I've read is on seniors, on those with complex chronic and the underserved. How would this, and, and I think to your point, these are the segments of the population that really need what you are describing here, this whole person care, the that last mile you're talking about, that connection, the care plan. I mean, it's all that. It makes so much sense. The need is tremendous. And actually, I think in one of the articles I read, uh, and it might have been an interview, Nick, you were in, it quoted a, a number that 53 million Americans struggle to care for their older loved ones. There's a shortage of 1.2 million home health aides coming in the next decade. Three quarters of seniors lack a coordinated care plan, on and on. And I think the need is there. How are you or are you targeting this for that population? How does that work in your mind? And I have to say, I'm just so inspired by your, both of you, just the sense of mission. Because Nick, to your point, I think it's clear you have the technical and business expertise to, to do anything and focus on any population and make whatever money you want. But you and Renee are focused on a, a serious problem in healthcare and making healthcare more humanistic, more whole person. And I really, really, I, I love it the approach you're taking and what you're trying to do, how are you going to reach these people and how is it going to, and, and, I mean, it always comes down to how do you pay for it and who pays for it, right? Yeah. So I think, I think there are two separate questions, right? Who pays for it is actually the easier question because lower income, underprivileged, underserved patients, older polychronic patients, um, low health and tech literacy patients, and the overlap between those groups they are often insured. Everyone over 65 in America has health insurance called Medicare, right? Um, many, many millions of people have Medicaid and different versions and flavors of Medicaid and state programs and stuff like that. So there is a financial incentive to lower their healthcare cost. And the only way to do it is to improve their outcomes rather than just robbing Peter to pay Paul or pushing costs down the road. I think we've learned that. So get it, finding someone to pay for it is, I don't think the hard part of the question. The hard part of the question is how do we get them to, how do we find them and get them to use it? And the reality is we have to speak to them with dignity and integrity. We have to speak with them and understand their needs. 
and that battle is won and lost on the phone. And to show them that we're different and we care and we're not just chasing the worried. Well, everybody, I'm not, I, I'm an, I'm very fortunate in my life. I'm a privileged person. I'm uh, got education my parents had money. But Renee is the same way we're, we grew up with privilege and we, we have, we're health literate and we're tech literate and all these things. But even I need care coordination because it's hard. It, mm-hmm. Nobody wants to think about the medicines they have to take and the vitals they have to measure. They just want to live their lives. Right. And so we want to make that easier. I think that by being authentic and treating humans, any human with the dignity that they deserve, right? Regardless of their socioeconomic status, and especially when they have more complex healthcare needs and lower health literacy, which means they're more daunted, more scared of, more mystified by what the heck is going on, right? Mm. That we, and we come at them with a honest uh, approach with integrity, then I think we can win them over. Renee, anything to add? Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's exactly right. Like, I think we could we could do what is happening, which is we could skim off the top, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, we've been told, wow, this sounds like a huge endeavor. This doesn't have focus, whatever, whatever. Mm-hmm. But that's the thing about healthcare. It, it needs this giant concept to bring it all together. And we're, we're here for that challenge. That's what's exciting to us. It's not just about making money. It's about delivering on that whole person, uh, you know, united care experience for caretaker and patient. Um, And it it really is about remembering those people who, like I said, are are being forgotten. I think they are in a state of desperation. And um, I see it every time I see every week when I see my patients, you know, Um, and I, again, I, I find it to be a privilege to be able to spend time with people like that and help them um, you really see the value of what you're doing almost immediately and, and they get better. You know, it, it's just about building context for them. Yeah. I have so many more questions for you, I, but I promised I would get you to your next meeting, which is coming up pretty soon. Any piece of advice, let me start with Renee, any piece of advice to healthcare system leaders across the country? If you, if you could recommend or advise something, what, what would it be? You know what I recommend is going to uh, your one of your doctor's offices and sitting there and watching that doctor work. <laughs> doctors, we do God's work. We you know, work so hard. We mean so well. And what is being asked of us is it's crazy, <laughs> you know. Um, and there's no there's no way again leaders at the top quite get what a doctor does and how valuable that doctor's insight is. So that would be a big piece of advice for me. Wow. Thank you for that directness and honesty. Nick, what would be your comment? And it could be to anyone from Robert Califf, the commissioner for the FDA, to the CMS administrator, to healthcare leaders, what recommendation or guidance do you have? Well, if I'm, I, I have a lot of different, I have a lot of opinions and I'm more than happy to belabor them, but I will just say this, which is let's solve real problems, right? Mm-hmm. Let's tackle real issues for that scale to millions of people, right? When I, I would say that I've said this so many times that when you look at services like Netflix or Grubhub or Instacart or Amazon, they're used by 
percentages of the American population Uber on any given day, right? 10%, every other, every week, half of America sets foot in a Walmart. Every week, X percent of people use Amazon or Netflix or whatever, right? The, the biggest health tech companies out there right now touch 1%, half a percent, quarter percent, tenth of a percent, a few hundred thousand people, right? So let's solve the big real, let's not try to skim off the top, let's truly innovate. We're still in the first inning of health tech innovation in America, and it's time to take on the big challenges. And yeah, we're going to hit some stumps along the way and some roadblocks and some of the approaches will fail and we might even fail in the approach. I don't think we will. And I'm certainly going to work our damnedest to make sure we don't, but I would rather fail trying to do something important than make money trying to do something that's trivial just because it makes me money. It's, it's, it doesn't feel authentic and it doesn't feel real and it doesn't feel like it should be called healthcare. Yeah. Wow. Again, I, I wish we had more time. I'm, I'm so inspired. I truly respect, admire you both as, as individuals. I will tell you one lesson I came away with is if you're a physician and you're interested in really transforming healthcare, it's probably a good idea to marry an engineer entrepreneur. And if you're an engineer entrepreneur who's interested in improving healthcare, it's probably a good idea to marry a physician. So that, that it was- It turns one. out if you do that, you'll have really cute kids too. So. <laughs> Which you do. I, I love seeing Nick. I really, really, uh, it touched my heart so much a few months ago when I saw you playing with the kids. So friends and colleagues, I'm going to bring this podcast to a close. I would like to sincerely thank our guests today, Dr. Renee Dua and Nick Desai. And my friends, as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients. So those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, I and we truly appreciate you for what you're doing, and we recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. This is Ev Newworth on Creating a New Healthcare. Until next time, be safe and be well. <laughs>